Another day is here, and you're ready for it. What to wear? Check. Breakfast, lunch, and dinner? Check. Planning for what's next and how to save for it? That's where Bank of America can help. For your financial to-dos, Bank of America has experts ready to help get you closer to your goals. Get started at one of our local financial centers or 24-7 in our mobile banking app. Find a location near you at bankofamerica.com slash talk to us. What would you like the power to do? Mobile banking requires downloading the app and is only available for select devices. Message and data rates may apply. Bank of America and a member FDSE. When you need mealtime inspiration, it's worth shopping Kroger, where you'll find over 30,000 mouth-watering choices that excite your inner foodie. And no matter what tasty choice you make, you'll enjoy our everyday low prices, plus extra ways to save, like digital coupons worth over $600 each week. You can also save up to $1 off per gallon at the pump with fuel points. More savings and more inspiring flavors make shopping Kroger worth it every time. Kroger, fresh for everyone. Fuel restrictions apply. Welcome to Let It Roll, the insanely ambitious musical history podcast hosted by Nate Wilcox. We've covered the early history of rock and roll, country music in the 20th century, the rise of hip-hop, disco, and electronic dance music, and now heavy metal. Stay tuned for our histories of Broadway, opera, punk rock, jazz, blues, and gospel. Follow the Let It Roll podcast on Twitter, at Let It Rollcast, and check out our website at letterrollpodcast.com. Let It Roll is a Pantheon podcast, and you can listen to more great podcasts at www.pantheonpodcast.com. Today, Nate welcomes James Gavin to discuss 80s pop legend George Michael. Email us at letterrollpodcast at gmail.com. Pop in those earbuds and enjoy. Time to let it roll. I'm your host, Nate Wilcox, and today we're joined by James Gavin, author of George Michael, A Life. James, welcome. Delighted to be here. I'm a big fan of the show. Well, thank you so much. And, and you know, for any Gen Xer, George Michael's going to be a topic close to our hearts. And for somebody who was a homophobic rock and roll meathead at the time, it's very complicated for me. So you've helped me kind of resolve a lot of these, I don't know, resolve, but it's definitely brought up a lot more emotion than I was expecting. Because, you know, I was a radio fan of George Michael and a over at my girlfriend's house fan of George Michael, but never in the car with my buddies kind of fan, a closeted George Michael fan, if you will. So um, it's been really interesting to me to go through the albums and and hear the deep cuts and, and stuff and reading the excellent book. So the first thing I want to get across is why does George Michael, why is he such a big deal now? Because he's definitely outrun many of his contemporaries. Uh, I'm not going to name any names besides Bruce Springsteen, but you know what I mean? <laughs> the drama that we all know George Michael lived with almost every single day of his life is as important to the George Michael mystique as the music is. It happens sometimes with these mythic legendary figures whose lives are as fraught with turmoil as any song they've ever written or sung. And when George Michael was at his heyday in the mid 80s through the early 90s, I, like you, was not captivated by George Michael. My head was in an entirely other place. I was obsessed with music of the past, the 1930s, 40s, and 50s. I did everything I could to avoid the present day. But George Michael slapped me across the face in 1996 when he released his album, Older. And that album, I felt, was a window into the man. I felt tremendous pain, conflict, loss in the songs of older. And that's the album that really drew me into George and made me determined one day to write something about him. And you've written an amazing book that, that tells this epic tale of somebody who had incredible, almost unimaginable success by the time he was 24. I mean, he's famous at 18. He's a superstar at 20. He's a globetrotting, you know, megastar up there with Madonna and Prince and Michael Jackson by the time he's 24. And yet it all unraveled really fast. He said with, with waves of personal tragedy, 
um, controversy about his sexuality, his refusal to come out of the closet until he's, you know, caught red-handed, as it were, in the late 90s. And this legal battle with Sony, which, you know, for the Let It Roll podcast, that's probably the most important part of his story is this struggle, this valiant fight he fought with his record company. Tell us a little bit about that. We'll go into it more detail, but just give us a quick you know, 30,000 foot view of that battle with Sony and why it mattered so much. <laughs> All right. The George Michael story is in many ways a classic tale of a talented individual who is almost pathologically obsessed with becoming world famous, conquering the entire globe and making millions of strangers love him. And the results of that were not so happy for George as they frequently are not. George spent the first half of his life creating this George Michael character. He spent the second half of his life trying to tear it down. And after the release of Listen Without Prejudice, Volume 1, which I think is an extraordinarily rich album, it sold half approximately of what the blockbuster predecessor faith had sold faith had sold about 15 million worldwide and listen without prejudice volume one sold about half that this is not at all unusual for second albums by a superstar it's it's hard to maintain that white hot peak for too too long but george was incredibly wounded by this george felt somehow let down by his record company. He blamed his record company for this. So needy was he, so desperate was he to be number one and to be loved by everybody. This is my analysis of things, of course, but George, George um, as part of his campaign to tear down the George Michael that he felt was a fraud, that uh, leather-clad, ultra macho biker dude, George sued his record company to get out of a contract that he had signed with expert legal advice. He knew everything that was in that contract, but he just wanted out. He wanted out of the whole George Michael thing. He wanted to somehow show the public a truer version of George Michael. In addition to that, he was sad and angry as hell, because in the course of that lawsuit, which was more or less 1992, three, four, George lost the love of his life. All during that, that explosive uh, period when he was the number one pop star in the world, he was standing on arena stages everywhere, feeling incredibly lonely as thousands upon thousands of mostly young women screened for him. He felt like a fraud up there, and he was also doubting that he would ever find love. Part of George's contract with superstardom, the fine print, was that he had to stay in the closet because if he came out, it might ruin everything. And so he met the love of his life totally by surprise in 1991 when he was appearing at a festival called Rock in Rio. And Anselmo Falepa was his name, this handsome, sweet, totally open Brazilian man, returned his feelings and for about six months they were blissfully happy together and George felt that his entire life had finally come together. At the approximate six-month point, Anselmo was diagnosed with HIV, and they had one more harrowing year together, and then Anselmo died. George said that the furor that he felt at seeing this angel torn away from him is part of what fueled him on to fight this unwinnable trial that cost him a huge amount of money and time and emotional energy. There was no way he could win and he lost. And it was one more in a series of devastating blows to him that sent him down a very bad road. Let's go ahead and hear our first song. This is Wham Rap from Wham. And when we come back, we'll backtrack a little bit and talk about George Michael's early life and his early career. 
Wham Rap from Wham. That was the first uh, single that got them on the map in England and started their career. Tell us about this this uh, kid. Um, where did he come from? What was his background? What were his parents like? What were his early musical influences? He was a North London kid from a well-to-do family. His mother was British and had been, to some degree or other, a dancer. She married a very determined Greek immigrant father from Cyprus, from a dirt road village in Cyprus, who was determined to make something of himself. And indeed he did. George's father moved to North London and went up the ranks until he became a restaurant owner. And he was uh, the creator of this popular local restaurant. He had a family life all in place. He had his beautiful wife, Leslie, and he had two daughters and a son. And the son, of course, was different and knew it from a very early age. First of all, George grew up with the feeling that, well, he was afraid of his father. His father was intimidating. His father had the homophobia that guys had in that era, but maybe more so because of the Greek Orthodox background in which homophobia is uh, unpardonable, really. And so George grew up feeling that he had a big secret to hide. Simultaneously to that, though, came this this overwhelming urge to be famous and loved. He had the talent to achieve that. And he also had something to prove. His father was never encouraging of George's talent and belittled him in ways that George himself said scarred him for a lifetime and determined so much of what followed. And tell us about the musical influences he grew up on, because, you know, from the outside, from America, somebody who saw him on MTV first, it was really hard for me to put him in the context of his contemporaries in Britain at the same time. So where was he coming from and who do you see as his musical peers or what scene would you see Wham! coming out of? Initially, George was not into the songs of the day too much. His main influence were uh, influences rather were old Motown records. The Supremes were a big influence on George. And when George was a child, he found some battered Motown 45s. A couple of them were by the Supremes in the house, unplayed for years. And he found an old record player and he was drawn into the he was drawn into the ethos of pop and the mechanics of pop. Instinctively, he got the fact that these records had a lot going for them. They had, um, technically speaking, the ability to tattoo themselves on the listener's brain and to make people feel good. It was almost as though those Supremes records and other Motown hits of the 1960s, it was almost as though they released endorphins into the bloodstream as soon as you heard them. And George had enough of a musical mind, even as a child, to know that there was there was a technique, there, there was a a, a path to achieving that. And he set out to do that. He was not a rock and roll kid. He didn't really like rock and roll very much. My theory is that he recognized in pop music the widest possible net that he could cast musically to make the most people love him. And so time went on and he became enraptured by Elton John probably sensing the fact that Elton John was also gay and this weirdo because George felt like a weirdo too at that time and and Stevie Wonder uh, in other words uh, black soul music influences and Elton all all of these i guess um marginalized groups that uh, uh, uh artists who had found that path to stardom that he wanted so desperately to follow. And so George was very serious 
about mastering, crack, cracking the code to how to do that. And at an early age as well, he discovered that he had a voice, that he could sing effortlessly with great musicality. And he, of course, had a sound that was different from other singers. He was uh, in a, not exactly an original. He was known throughout his career as an assimilator of past sounds who whipped them all up and put them together in his own way with his own production. But you, you can easily trace the influences in George Michael's uh, singing. When he sings a Stevie Wonder song, you can hear Stevie. But uh, it was all of this that gave him a reason for being. And then when he was in high school in North London, this geeky kid who was pimply and had a mess of curly hair and glasses and was overweight, and he saw the coolest kid in class, Andrew Ridgely, who had unbelievable of ease and confidence and aloofness and swagger about him. And in Andrew, George saw a template for what he wanted to be. And let's go ahead and hear our, our next song. And this is Careless Whisper. This is the first solo single by George Michael, but written very early in the Wham! days. And um, Hopefully we'll get to the, the whole struggle to get the right saxophone so, solo for this. This is Careless Whisper by George Michael. was george michael's first solo number one careless whisper and so back to andrew ridgely and also there's another guy david austin that comes into his life around the same time and you know the thing with wham is it's right up there with simon and garfunkel and hall and oates it's kind of a, a joke duo like everybody knows george michael did everything but andrew ridgely contributed a whole lot early on what was the secret ingredient that andrew ridgely added if it were not for Andrew Ridgely, there would never have been a Wham! and there probably would never have been a George Michael. We all know that Andrew was not that gifted as an artist, it's clear. But Wham! was about style. And George knew that the George Michael that he was at that moment just wouldn't do. He didn't know how to recreate himself, and Andrew Ridgely showed him the way. He copied Andrew Ridgely as Simon Napier-Bell, who was the co-manager with a guy named Jazz Summers of Wham, has said, Wham, and I'm paraphrasing Simon, Wham consisted of a real um, Andrew Ridgely and a fake Andrew Ridgely. And it was very soon after that, that George's musical abilities took over. He and all the choices basically were his. Andrew was around for them, but Andrew was along for the ride and just being fabulous and loving being a major British and then worldwide star. And he was up there to lend his presence to uh, Wham, but he didn't have to do that much. And George was insistent on doing things his way andrew knew that that was for the best for the group and he went along with it and tell us about their big break and their relationship with intervision which was this promo company mark dean and shamsi ahmed who had a distribution deal with cbs how did that come together and how did it fall apart george and andrew were very diligently shopping their little cassette demo all over London, sitting in waiting rooms and hoping for the best with that bravado that kids that age have. You're just, you want something, you have nothing to lose, you're fearless about it. And so it was with uh, Andrew and George and it came into the hands of Mark Dean who had this little startup label 
that was being financed by CBS to a certain degree. Everything was on a shoestring. The contract that George and Andrew wound up signing has um, somewhat unfairly been maligned as exploitative and horrible. One of the worst record deals ever signed. And yet, we must remember the fact that without InterVision, would we be having this conversation at all today? Probably not. I don't think that Mark Dean was um, a bad guy. He was looking to make a buck and to put his, uh, his label on the map. And so he did. It was a stepping stone for Andrew and George to stardom, and it achieved that. And very quickly, they realized that InterVision was small potatoes and that they needed to move on. And they took all the necessary steps to untangle themselves from InterVision. It resulted in a lot of bad blood. And yet George had his eyes set on big, big stardom, and InterVision just wouldn't do. And I did want to backtrack just a tiny bit and mentioned the executive, which was the early uh, two-tone ska group that that George Michael and Andrew Ridgely and their friend David Austin and a couple other people had going. So that's kind of the context. That they certainly weren't at the forefront of the ska movement, but they were they were they identified with that scene led by the specials and the beat and the selector and others, which was a very integrated scene and and one that that you know put their Africa, you know, uh, Afro-Caribbean influences on their sleeves. So that's kind of where they were coming from. I just wanted to get that out there. And then how did they get their first break? And and how did the Wham rap, like, first off, what are they doing doing a rap? What is it, 1983? I mean, they're they're barely behind the Sugar Hill Gang. How were they hip enough to know about rap and, and to do it credibly enough to have a hit record? I don't know this for sure, but I'm pretty sure that George was familiar with the Debbie Harry uh, uh, rap, uh, breakthrough rapture. rap, yep. rapture, exactly. And George um, heard that and he heard other very early rap recordings. And he had at that time and for a few years to come, he had an unerring ear for what was bubbling up and what was hot and what would get him attention. So it was later on when George recorded, I want your sex. We'll get to that later. George knew that this was something that hadn't been done much before and that would get him a lot of attention as a white North London boy. Uh, he did it with, in my opinion, th those those couple of, of Wham rap records are are really fun. It's it's a it's a teenage <laughs> rap boy band by these white kids. And those stories were very relatable for other teenage white kids. And they were also fun. George did it very well. He didn't stay with it for very long, but George had rhythm. He had swing. He had a sense of humor. And although he was in a way deadly serious about using these records as a launching pad, uh, th these records and the videos that accompany them are, are really fun. They're not like other rap records of the day. Yeah, they definitely didn't take themselves seriously. And that was kind of their gift that they they always had their tongue in cheek, you know. And I remember my first exposure to them was, of course, Wake Me Up Before You Go-Go, becoming omnipresent on, on TV with the Choose Live t-shirts. And it was kind of overwhelming, this ultimate earworm of a song and these two pretty boys just uninhibited dancing in a way you just never really see. You didn't see it then, you, you rarely see it now. But how did they get their big break? How did Top of the Pops help them break through in England? Top of the Pops was simply the biggest television show for new music that existed at the time. Its influence reached beyond England, but it was something like... I guess the Ed Sullivan show was in the 1950s and 60s, something that everybody watched. And if you were a music fan, a pop music fan, because the show was very, very pop, then you were perched in front of your television set once a week to see what Top of the Pops was serving up. And they wound on, up on that show as a kind of last minute substitute uh, act and 
they were absolutely determined to to wow everybody and they did george was cute as hell andrew was cute as hell the music was fun it was it was digestible it was aimed certainly at the hearts of teenage girls and at the libidos of teenage girls because that's something else that George had on his mind from the beginning. He just had such a clear sense of what he had to do to become famous. Here was a big market and they worked it and George was backing himself into a cage all the while because his entire early stardom depended on the love of millions of teenage girls whose sex he did not want, but they sure wanted his. (laughs) That's a good way to put it. Um, And so they have this initial success. They put together the fantastic album. And then we've already talked a little bit about the falling out with InterVision, but he manages to sort of leapfrog from InterVision to CBS. Now, CBS, InterVision's the one who brought CBS in because they had a distributorship deal. Tell us a little bit about that and, and you know, kind of how George Michael played one end against the other and ended up signing the contract with the Big Ogre that he's later going to be fighting for so many years. Oh, wait, Steph tells me I've got to cue my sponsor break. So apologies. Let's hear from our sponsor. When we come back, you can answer that question. Sorry about that. Now you can tell us about the CBS relationship. Mark Dean was a little guy. He was easy to steamroller. There are a million stories like this in, in the history of the pop record industry. And George wanted out. He didn't so much as just dislike InterVision as he saw InterVision as discardable. It was a stepping stone to where he wanted to go, but it would no longer serve his purposes. So of course he had the big monolithic record company who took his side, even though they uh, were were stomping on one of their own in a way, but InterVision just wouldn't do. And so uh, with the help of Simon Napier-Bell and Jazz Summers, WAM's managers, George took all the necessary legal steps to get out of that little deal. As far as I know, Mark Dean was bought off at a, at a, for a modest sum, and George was off and running. And I want to mention, you tell a sad story of of Dean's partner, Shamsi Ahmed. What happened to him after this deal falls apart? Sadly, after InterVision fell through, Mark Dean's partner, his business partner, was so shattered that he went off on a very bad road and he wound up in jail and ultimately he committed suicide. But that aspect of the George Michael success story is very seldom discussed. The cost. Yeah, there's always a price to pay, and and we tend to dwell on the price paid by the superstar, but we forget for every John Lennon, there's a Brian Epstein and a Stu Sutcliffe, and Shamsi Ahmed was kind of in that role for George Michael. But meanwhile, you know, Wham! is going onward and upward, and to my ear, at least, there's a big jump in quality between the first and second album. I mean, the first album is fun and, and an amazing debut for an 18-year-old, but the growth is, the growth curve is exponential here. And I want to talk about two songs. Wake Me Up Before You Go-Go. Where did that come from? What was the inspiration? How did he have the balls to put out a song that was just that catchy and, and you know, just palpably light? And then tell us about Careless Whisper, the, the source of that and, and the whole pretty epic tale of recording it wait <clears throat> excuse me wake me up before you go go was classic bubblegum boy band at that time george in later years would be a little bit embarrassed at the cheesiness of those records he certainly didn't include wake me up before you go go in his later hits medley in his in his uh, concerts, but Wake Me Up Before You Go-Go sprang out of a cute little note that uh, had been left by Andrew in his mother's home when George and Andrew were supposed to uh, leave on a plane to go perform someplace. And uh, Andrew was 
trashed from the night before. So the story goes. And so there were two goes instead of one. George saw this note when he was waiting for Andrew. And uh, the rest is, is history. He just had such an eye for things that would things that would stick in the brain. And he created this pink blonde fantasia of of uh, teenage carefree uh, gosh how do I even express it in words the frothiness and the lightness it's just as though you see pink spotlights and bubbles and this irresistible backbeat George was more responsible than anybody involved in that song for creating the entire feel of that song which had a very groovy video to match and so George and Andrew were branded worldwide as bubblegum pop that song of course um, swept the world Doris Day is mentioned in that song Doris Day loved that song in fact, uh, when I was in the th final throes of research for my book, I found in a shoebox here, uh, I love Doris Day, and I found a cassette that contained a Doris Day fan club appearance from about 1987. A few years after that had come out, that song had come out, and I was delighted when somebody in the audience asks Doris Day her opinion of that song, and I was able to quote Doris Day about Wham! Isn't that wonderful? <laughs> so <That's> awesome. <laughs> anyway, so George's next step became it within a year or two because he was he grew weary of being seen as lightweight fluff, and he wanted to create a much more serious George Michael, as of course he did. And I've got to mention MTV, which played a huge role in breaking not just Wham, but, you know, Culture Club and Thompson Twins and this whole second British invasion that happened in the 80s, strictly because MTV was able to leapfrog the the Berlin Wall that FM radio had put up against pop and against R&B um, in, the, in the States in the 70s. And so it comes crashing down that video is absolutely irresistible i think just sums up the mid 80s kind of the you know it came out around the same time as frankie goes to hollywood if i remember right it was kind of the less edgy version but it, but very much a twin of relax but tell us about careless whisper because that's the song that when we first see george michael breaking away from wham and creating this new more mature persona Careless Whisper came out under the name of Wham, but it was a George Michael single. Apart from having provided, <clears throat> apart from having provided some of the chords, because George was not very good with chords, he was good with creating tunes, but he did turn to Andrew Ridgely for some chords. So the story goes. And they share writing credit on this song, which George concocted himself, including one of the most fabled saxophone solos to ever appear in a in a pop music single. Uh, the first version of Careless Whisper, as you know, as your listeners know, probably was produced by the great Jerry Wexler. And Jerry Wexler gathered a bunch of musicians, including a saxophonist whose identity I have never been able to find. I talked to Jerry Wexler's son. I talked to Simon Napier-Bell. I talked to a couple of musicians. No one remembers who this reportedly West, uh, West Coast-based saxophonist who had been imported to, uh, into the recording session to, to play George's solo, which is just so sexy it, it's so slithery and so it, it oozes with sex that was part of what george was trying to remake himself as uh, an adult sex symbol as opposed to a teeny bopper sex symbol and so he heard a very slick production of his song very clean, very slick, studio-sounding version, and he knew that there was something essential missing. And he wound up scrapping it. Now, George was, at that time, in his early 20s, 
Jerry Wexler was a giant and George felt that he knew better. And of course he did. So auditions were held for a new saxophone player. Many came and went. None of them quite had the sound that George felt uh, the song needed. And then in came uh, a guy on the scene, not famous, but very talented, named Steve Gregory. And he played the solo, and George immediately sensed that this version was dirty. He, he wanted this, this uh, song, he wanted this whole production to ooze sex, and Steve Gregory was able to give him that nasty swagger that he wanted. Yeah, and Gregory, probably best known for doing the sax break on the Stones Honky Tonk Women. Um, and, and a whole nother, you know, decades earlier, he had done that. So, you know, at this point, George and Wham are this unstoppable machine. Um, actually, I've got a cue now, and this is a little bit of a non sequitur. We'll come back and talk about Listen Without Prejudice. But this is Freedom 90, the anthem from Listen Without Prejudice. Freedom 90 from George Michael's uh, second solo album, Listen Without Prejudice, but backtracking a little bit, Wham! still has a couple more big accomplishments before they break up, and, and I'm talking about uh, their tour of China and their appearance at Live Aid. Tell us quickly about those two triumphs. Simon Napier-Bell and Jazz Summers, but probably primarily Simon Napier-Bell, whipped up this tour of communist China for Wham. And in order to understand how earth-shaking it was, one must realize that music such as George Michael's, tawdry pop music, quote-unquote, was absolutely verboten there. It was uh, more or less banned from the country and from the ears of the young people because it signaled disobedience, it signaled sex and all the other things, nudity even, <laughs> that, uh, that pop music was not supposed to inject into young impressionable minds. And a very august director, Lindsay Anderson, was enlisted to create a Wham! documentary. It added an extra layer of drama to that trip to China because Lindsay Anderson had a very serious view of Wham! and their place in not only British pop history, but the significance of the fact that this British boy band was now uh, grinding its hips and singing about uh, sex in front of these poor uh, Chinese kids who, who had lived under communism all their lives. It was a much more serious view of the band than George and Simon and Jazz Summers wanted. And so Lindsay Anderson got the boot. George took the film back from Lindsay Anderson. He edited it into... Uh, I would say a slick concert video with very little of the backstory and the psychodrama involved in that trip and came up with basically an hour and something long extended MTV music video with a little bit of behind the scenes footage. But Simon's ingenuity in conceiving and it was immensely complicated. Getting Wham! over to China got world headlines. When I was researching that little blip in, their, in the career of Wham!, I found articles literally from all over the world. It was headline news. It was so revolutionary to put these kids over there. And it did make something of a difference. It showed the Chinese youth what they were uh, missing. It was a very, the success of it was a very threatening thing there in China for the authorities. And it became a part of the Wham! legend. One of the things that uh, I 
noticed early on as a biographer when I was writing about legends is that legends don't only produce legendary work. Everything about the life of a legend becomes mythic and legendary. Think of Frank Sinatra. Every phase of his life from his childhood until his death is somehow mythic and dramatized and legendary. And George Michael's story is very much along those same lines. Yeah, absolutely. And, and we're going to have to kind of rush through the faith part because I want to get to the to the Sony suit and, and the thing. But but he breaks up Wham, puts out faith, which is just a superstar clicking on all cylinders. Like you said, sold 15 to 20 something million copies, multiple hit singles, including the title track. And I want your sex around the same time. He's doing these duets. I knew you were waiting for me with Aretha Franklin does another one with Elton John that are number one. I mean, Everything's coming up George Michael in this period, but there's there's also some indications that not everything is the the tide kind of turns. And to me, one of the key moments is when he wins um, these awards at the American Music Awards. He's the first white artist to win favorite soul R&B male artist, and also Faith won favorite soul R&B album. And you know, for all these British stars who've worshipped Black American singers, started you know with Cliff Richard and the Beatles and you know, Rod Stewart and Mick Jagger and all these macho butch English guys that loved black artists, but almost none of them got over with the African-American audiences. The only two exceptions to that I can think of are Elton John and George Michael. And so this is this incredible honor for him. And it was a fan vote element to this. But what happened after he won that award? I would guess that a lot of black music stars kept their mouths shut. But Three who didn't and whose assessments of this situation are probably much more broadly indicative of how the black music industry really felt. Three of the three of them were Dionne Warwick, Gladys Knight and Freddie Jackson, all of whom spoke out against the fact that this this white blue eyed soul singer from England had usurped the places of black artists who really who were authentic soul singers, they were pissed off. And George, in my opinion, had done this uh, very, very sincerely. Of course, he wanted to be number one on those charts. It was part of his plan to be number one uh, and to show that soul music was not completely dictated by the color of one's skin, but there was a lot of uh, fallout afterwards because he was considered to have appropriated black music. Those recordings for me are, rather than being imitative so much of, of soul singing and soul singing mannerisms. Eldon was very imitative of, of soul singing mannerisms. George was not. George sang in a very clean and straightforward fashion. He was not trying to sound black. He just wanted to get the feeling right. And that he did. And let's hear our last song. This is Fast Love from the older album. George Michael's Fast Love off the older album. And I, I was pretty impressed with the older album. This is the first time I've, I've listened to it, going back and preparing for this show. And that song, though, kind of ties in with one of the Achilles heels that's, that kind of dogs George Michael and really changes, leads to the change in his public image as, as he's seen. But as you mentioned before, he gets into this legal battle with Sony, kind of a self-defeating thing, because he had signed all the deals, he had good legal advice. You kind of make a case in the book that his management kind of led him astray and stirred up that fight for reasons of their own. But he knew what he was doing, and he was you know, a very strong figure. But this happens at the same time that he loses, meets and loses the love of his life in short order, and... Um, feels very abandoned and betrayed by his record company because Listen Without Prejudice sold more than Faith in England, where where 
CBS England supported it very much, but he didn't want to promote it. He was sick of that George Michael thing. He had a bad case of imposter syndrome and felt that that, you know, macho, uh, unshaven face biker image that he had on faith was a lie, which later in his life, he comes around and realizes, you know, once he'd integrated his personality and, and come out as gay, he realized that it was him, you know, but, but when he was young and closeted and, and living this lie, he, he, he didn't see it that way. And so he tries to destroy the icon, refuses to promote, gets in this fallout with Sony. How does he come back? What record executive brought him back into the fold? Well, George, after that failed lawsuit, never regained what he had had before in the United States. He was away for too long. Listen Without Prejudice, Volume 1 is 1990 and older is 1996. I'm talking about release dates. He was away for too long. Pop music is ephemeral. You stand the danger of being replaced if you stay away for too long and with older which David Geffen engineered the US and a release of, uh, not the UK, with older, George wanted to be back at number one with this heart-rending, personal, revealing look into his life and his heart at that time. But that album, apart from the Fast Love single, which was you know, supposed to be the, the, the big commercial breakthrough tune on that album. Uh, a s probably for its time, slightly dated sounding dance tune. The rest of the album was melancholy and to a lot of people's ears depressing. And this was not the album that was going to place George Michael back on top in the US. It certainly was a smash in the UK because almost everything he ever did was right up until the end. But things were wrapping up fast for George Michael in the US. He was he had been left behind. And then when his mother, Leslie, delivered one more almost fatal blow to George by dying prematurely of cancer in 1997, that really set George off on a dangerous path. Yeah, it did. And I want to mention one other triumph before that, that he he um, sang "Somebody to Love" at the at the Freddie Mercury Memorial Concert and and blew it out of the park. It, it's it's you know one of those big epic rock star moments and a tribute, obviously Freddie Mercury, uh, as a as a another closeted gay performer and English superstar. You know is so perfect and fitting. But like you said, he, he he's out of the game for several years. He kind of falls behind. David Geffen gets him out of his Sony contract, buys him out, and allows him to come back. I also want to mention Frank Sinatra wrote an open letter to George Michael in this period, telling him to get out there and sing, kid. Like, you've got too much talent to waste. Um, you know, and just, I don't, uh, Should I comment on that? <laughs> yeah, yeah, comment on that. Tell us about that. How did that impact George Michael? Because he's somebody who cared about people like Frank Sinatra. When George, in the early 1990s, was giving interviews about the 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 dreadfulness of stardom and the compromises of stardom and so forth. Frank Sinatra read about it, I guess, in the LA Times. And while I don't think that Frank sat down at the typewriter, a letter was sent to George Michael from Frank Sinatra's office, and it sure as hell sounded like Frank. And Frank gave George some tough love in that letter in perfect Frank Sinatra prose, said, listen, kid, all of us who are up here at the top are lucky to be here and it could be taken away from us at any time, I'm paraphrasing. And this letter was leaked to the press. That I find very interesting. The fact that somebody in Frank Sinatra's office sent this letter out and it circled the world and became again a part of the George Michael legend. George was very annoyed by this. He felt that he had been shamed by Frank Sinatra and he didn't lose the opportunity to insert a couple of digs here and there in interviews and even on concert stages about how Frank had done this to him. He felt betrayed by Frank Sinatra. Accountability was not George Michael's middle name. <laughs> no, and, uh, and, and it would be overwhelming for anybody, especially somebody as big a pop fan as George Michael, to get tough love, like you say, from Frank Sinatra. But we got to talk about the decline and fall and, and this you know, he gets set up in a in a Beverly Hills bathroom by an undercover cop. Tell us about that and and 
and he had not come out at that point. I had forgotten that, that he was still closeted until until this arrest. Tell us about this and and you know how that pattern just continued through his final years. Up until the early 90s, the tabloid press, the press in general, was more than happy to connect George with beautiful women, including Brooke Shields. They went out on a couple of dates. Nothing ever happened, obviously. George did have a somewhat heterosexual past. He was involved with a young Asian woman named Kathy Young, who's, of course, still around. And that relationship was sexual for a time, at least. But George was very quickly realizing that he was gay. His, his uh, publicist sent out these fabricated stories. The columnists printed them. And this all fit in very well with George's plan. However, by the mid-90s, the drumbeats were getting louder and louder. It was an open secret that George was gay and the press kept trying to gently prod him and get him to say those words that gay people, gay celebrities at that time were increasingly under pressure to say, which were, I am gay or I am a lesbian. He wouldn't do it. He was clinging to the inside of the closet door. He loses the Sony lawsuit. Older is a flop. Anselmo had died, and in 1997, his mother had died. Big blows to George Michael's poor, beleaguered heart. And so he developed one of his first big addictions. He became a pothead as a result of Anselmo's uh, death. I would would say by the mid-90s, George was pretty well stoned on pot every waking hour. He moved on to the hard stuff later on. But in 1997, if not sooner, but certainly in 1997, with the death of his mother, he began craving love in all the wrong places. So he began doing a lot of what the British call cottaging, looking for uh, quick anonymous sex in public places. And he made the very questionable move of frequenting the men's room in the Will Rogers Memorial Park of Beverly Hills, a very public park. A lot of families, a lot of weddings took place there. And there was George Michael cruising away with dark glasses on and a baseball cap. But God, he was recognizable even in that getup. And so George went in the men's room with the wrong guy, and that was an undercover policeman who perhaps had set him up. At that time in Southern California, there was a lot of, of there, was a, there were sting operations in order to, to weed out the guys who did that kind of thing. And George insisted that he was entrapped. I think it's probably true that he was. Of course, the officer denied it. But a sexual act took place between them in the men's room. George swore that it was consensual. George stepped out of that men's room and was arrested. And his life was never the same. I remember, Nate, watching MTV and VH1 and CNN at that time, and this was real breaking news, not only because of the nature of what George had done, and remember things were really different for gay guys back in 1998, but because George had never come out, and now here he was, this immensely privileged, beloved, famous talented guy had chosen to out himself, it seemed, in this most unfortunate fashion. And for a time, it made him into a laughingstock, and George had to do serious damage control with partial success. Yeah, his last decade, uh, Ricky Gervais, uh, one of many who worked with him and kind of, you know, he had, I can't remember which Ricky Gervais show it was, but George Michael guessed it as himself and kind of poked fun at this thing. But the pattern didn't stop. There's a, you know, pattern of DUIs and little car wrecks and, and other sexual imbroglios that continue all the way up till his tragic deaths in 2016. What happened at the end? Well, he went from pot to the hard stuff, specifically GHB, which he discovered around, I would say, 2003, 2004, which was the big up and coming gay party drug uh, following crystal meth. 
GHB is more insidious and dangerous in certain ways. And uh, I believe that it's the single greatest factor in taking George out in 2016. You know, the first big interview that I scored for this book was with David Geffen. It was surprisingly easy to get him. And he had a very smart and tough perception of George Michael, the toughest, really. And he pointed out to me that when you don't like what you see in the mirror, when you don't like yourself, then it doesn't matter that millions of people are screaming for you and telling you, as David says, how great you are and how hot you are. You will not believe them. In fact, you may resent them for in your view, lying to you. And that is one of the great sadnesses of the George Michael story. He didn't believe that he was attractive. He knew that he was good. He knew that he was talented. But there was such a deep strain of, of self-hatred in George that just grew and grew. The more lost he became, the lonelier that he felt. And he was in a long-term relationship with a man named Kenny Goss. They were together for, I would say, give or take 13 years. And it was an open relationship. And George, for a time, had felt the sense of, in the mid-90s, the sense of stability and pride that one feels in the early stages of a relationship that seems good, but it didn't last. And George's self-hatred just grew and grew and he became as focused and determined to tear himself down in every way as he had been to create himself. And he succeeded. My guest has been James Gavin because George Michael a life. And I just got to say the music is the legacy, the, the stories of tragedy, but you know, what a load of great music he left us. And James, thanks so much for helping us tell this story. Nate, may I add one quick postscript? Please. Last night, I watched the trailer for the new Billy Eichner gay rom-com, Bros. I haven't seen the film yet, but there in a big disco scene is George Michael singing Freedom. The Freedom 90 recording is there. And I thought, God, isn't that marvelous? For all of the shame that George Michael seemed to have felt in, in being gay, for all of that aforementioned self-hatred that he felt, for for all of the, the sadness of the way he chose to finally out himself, I don't think young gay people are aware of too much of that backstory. I think that they see George Michael as this triumphant, groundbreaking figure who was sexy and and strong and who stood on arena stages and just conquered and who had this spectacular natural gift and they derive great satisfaction and great um, inspiration from that. Also, from the beginning of this project, I signed to do it in 2017, it came out in 2022, but from the beginning of this project, I found that whenever I mentioned the name George Michael to anybody, they smiled. It was as though a rush of good feelings swept over their faces and they thought about the good things. George Michael could stand as a tragic figure today, but for some reason, the other part of him, the happy part of George is what overruled all that other stuff. Isn't that nice? Yes, I'm glad you ended it that way. That's the perfect ending. It reminds me of the way Freddie Mercury has become an icon, even though he was totally closeted in his own life. Uh, time will tell. And it's told in the case of George Michael. James, thanks so much for coming on the show. Absolute joy to be with you, Nate. Follow the Let It Roll podcast on Twitter at Let It Rollcast and check out our website at LetItRollPodcast.com. Monday, Nate welcomes back Peter Ames Carlin to discuss folk rock and singer-songwriter star Paul Simon. Let It Roll is a Pantheon podcast, and you can listen to more great podcasts at www.pantheonpodcasts.com. It's NFL draft season, and that means it's time to start thinking about fantasy football. 
FantasyPoints.com features industry-leading experts and prognosticators using proprietary hand-charted data to help you score more fantasy points. FantasyPoints.com is the place to go for whatever kind of fantasy football you play. Whether you play fantasy football, daily fantasy sports, or do a little bit of everything, Fantasy Points has the meticulously researched content to guide you to victory. And why wait for the fall? Fantasy Points also covers the new spring football league, the UFL. Join the guru, John Hansen, Scott Barrett, Joe Dolan, and other massive names in the fantasy football universe with an exclusive offer. Use code Pantheon for 15% off any Fantasy Points package, including the all-in package, with access to every article, tool, and data nugget that Fantasy Points has to offer. That's FantasyPoints.com and code Pantheon for 15% off at Fantasy Points. FantasyPoints.com, code Pantheon. Score more Fantasy Points. 